Well, good morning, church. I'm going to say it one more time. Good morning, church. I have to say it twice because one of my little four-year-old friends stopped me in the hallway and said, you didn't say good morning, church, this morning. I did. He just didn't hear it, but now we said it twice in the second service. Please turn with me in your book of Revelation, the last book of the Bible, Revelation chapter 16. It's also printed. Our text is printed for you in the bulletin. <clears throat> if you're new with us, we are, we've been studying through this last book, which is a book about last things, the things that are going to occur at the end of the world and into eternity. And we've been drawing great comfort from it, even in disturbing passages like the one we're going to read, because we know every one of them tells us Jesus wins. Our study today is chapter 16, verses 1 to 7. It may sound a little familiar because it's another group of seven, seven bowls of wrath. We have looked at seven seals. In chapters 8 to 11, we looked at seven trumpets. And there's a lot of parallel, a lot of similarities between these seven bowls of wrath and seven trumpets of judgment. They roughly parallel, uh, focus on the various uh, issues that, are, that God is bringing judgment against. They differ only in intensity. The trumpets are announcing the judgment that is to come. These bowls of wrath that are poured out are descriptive of the final judgment. There is nothing past the act of judgment that is displayed in the pouring out of one of these bowls of wrath. They also parallel the ten plagues. They are stern, difficult, even threatening words. But we pray that they are, as John Calvin called uh, these kinds of threats in the Bible, gospel threats. That is, they threaten us with judgment, driving us to repentance, driving us to the gospel. We never preach judgment as an end in itself, but as a call, a warning to flee to Christ. So even in these difficult words that we'll read, listen with ears attuned by the Holy Spirit for the good news on the other side. John writes, then I heard a loud voice from the temple telling the seven angels, go and pour out on the earth the seven bowls of the wrath of God. So the first angel went and poured out his bowl on the earth and harmful and painful sores came upon the people who bore the mark of the beast and worshiped his image. The second angel poured out his bowl into the sea and it became like the blood of a corpse, and every living thing died that was in the sea. A third angel poured out his bowl into the rivers and springs of water, and they became blood. And I heard the angel in charge of the waters say, Just are you, O Holy One, who is and who was. For you brought these judgments, for they have shed the blood of saints and prophets, and you have given them blood to drink. It is what they deserve. And I heard the altar saying, yes, Lord God, the Almighty, true and just are your judgments. Brothers and sisters, the grass withers and the flower fades, 
but the word of our God will stand forever. A few years ago, a title of a journal article caught my eye. If I'd seen the author, that would have caught my eye too because I admire him very much. But the title of the, author, of, the, of the article is what caught my eye, and it was this, Why Preachers Are a Pain. Why Preachers Are a Pain. He tells a story about preaching in his congregation on one occasion, and afterwards as he's shaking hands like we used to be able to do. Someday we'll get back to, but this uh, person came through and uh, didn't even lift his eyes to meet the pastor's eyes. He said, preacher, I know that you never would intend to hurt me, but I want you to know today you hurt me. Today you hurt my feelings. Then he walked away. The author of the article said, I wanted to say, I thought in my mind, What on earth would ever make you think that I would never want to hurt you? What on earth would you, why would you ever think that I would not want to hurt you? I'm preaching the word of Christ who said, take up your cross and follow me. I'm preaching the tradition of Martin Luther who said, the word of God is the surgeon's scalpel. It cuts in order to heal. The evaluation form that my preaching professor used to use with us and the section on application, how did did this preacher do an application? He would ask, when the preacher hurt you, when they wounded you, was it only for the purpose of healing? Was it clear that when they wounded you, from the Word with the application, was it clear that the only purpose was to heal? We know that Pastor John, who writes this letter, we know he loves us. He calls us dear friends, especially in his epistles. He says we're his dearly loved. He reminds us that God the Father loves us. He reminds us that Jesus shed his blood to save us because the Father loved us. So we know coming to the book that every word that is written is out of love for us, even when it hurts to hear it. And you today, if you are not a believer in Jesus Christ, you're still refusing to bend the knee to His Lordship. You must understand that the Lord Jesus, though He may offend you today, though He's wounding you today, it is only for the purpose of healing you, to drive you to Himself. Now, we might say it a different way, that that wounding, that, that offending, that saying no is, as a mentor used to say to me, for the sake of giving a better yes. There are certain things that we want, we think we want, and we hear Jesus say no to our yes, but we must always hear Jesus whenever He says no, whenever He gives a warning, it is so that He would give us a better yes. His way is always the best and better. So specifically, he puts his finger on the sore spots of our souls, that is our idolatry to social approval, our social idolatry. 
And he wants to give us a better yes with of courage. He puts his finger on the sore spot of our soul, our stuff idolatry, in order to drive us to his better yes of contentment. Wherever he wounds us, it is ultimately to drive us to courage and contentment. Look at it, verses 1 through 3. That's where he steps on our social idolatry in order to drive us to the better yes of courage that will be satisfying into all of eternity. Now, where do I get that? It is in verse verse 2 when he says he pours out the bowl, the first bowl, the bowl of his wrath on the earth and harmful and painful sores come upon the people. Remember that from Exodus. Who bore, he poured it out on whom? Those who bore the mark of the beast and worshiped his image. Now, we've talked about this mark of the beast. We don't think that it's some computer chip implanted or some tattoo on your forehead or forearm. But rather, we've learned as we've studied uh, this, uh, this allusion to the mark of the beast in the letters to Smyrna and Pergamum and Thyatira, as we've studied it in previous chapters, the mark of the beast is blending in. The mark of the beast is the approval of the world, the approval of that system of the world that stands in opposition to Lord King Jesus. To take the mark of the beast on us is to is to camouflage ourselves, it is to blend in, it is to hide, it is to allow ourselves to be sidelined so that we don't stick out, so that we don't, we are not noticed as believers, and so that we won't lose anything. Remember, we, when we looked at the, the letters to Pergamum and Thyatira and Smyrna, it says, uh, you are, you're losing things. You're, if, if, you, if you blend in with everybody else, even if in your heart you don't believe that particular worldview that you are commemorating or you're socializing about, even if you don't believe it in your heart, you are doing it on the outside. You're conforming to everybody else because if you don't, you're going to be boycotted. Your business is going to be boycotted. It's going to hurt your pocketbook. It's going, to, it's going to hurt your social standing. You're going to be kicked out of social clubs. People are going to turn their back on you. You're going to call you a fanatic. They're going to call you a hater. And so uh, you worship on Sundays, but then through the rest of the week, there is no noticeable difference. You never speak up. You never stand out. You never stand for anything that might cost you. Social idolatry. Now, the Christians in, in Rome, in the Rome, Roman Empire, in the next 50 years apparently continued to blend in. One of the governors of Bithynia, a little country, a country in Asia Minor, one of the governors named Pliny wrote to a colleague who was worried about Christians. What they were, they were gonna, they were gonna be a disturbance, a revolutionary force in his, in uh, under his command. And Pliny, the governor of Bithynia, wrote to this man and said, "Don't worry about the Christians; they're absolutely harmless. They don't stand out. They do their weird stuff on Sunday. 
They believe some weird things, but it never comes out in their daily living. It will not threaten the unity of your empire. By the 200s, by the 200s, Tertullian said, another church father, there was no difference between Christians and non-Christians except the Christians don't tend to get drunk and they don't commit sexual immorality. But everywhere else, everything else is just the same. They blend in. I've read a survey a few years ago that asked, is there any difference between born-again Christians and the rest of the population of secularists? Now, the definition of born-again in this survey was a little, a little sketchy. We wouldn't uh, agree with it totally. But uh, I'm afraid that it has more truth than, than not. This sociologist said the only statistical difference he could find between so-called born-again Christians and secularists is that born-again Christians don't tend to recycle as much as their secular neighbors. One atheist said of evangelicals today, an atheist, not only do they dispense with doctrine uh, not only do they dispense with doctrine, denominations, and theology, they also want to avoid any actions that will make other people feel that their faults have cosmic significance. Evangelicals, in other words, those who are claiming to be evangelicals, don't want to quibble about doctrine, don't want to talk about denominations or theology, and neither do they want to offend their neighbor by standing in the way and saying, there is a better way because it might cost them a relationship or social standing. Is it true of you or me? In your mind, in my mind, there are social settings, whether it's family, whether it's extended family, whether it's your workplace, whether it's um, uh, publicity, whether it's in your, your, your friendship groups. There, there are groups of people that if it came down to it, it said, if you continue to stand on this matter, which you know is a, an issue that is important to Jesus, if they say, you continue to stand on that matter, you no longer have a part of us. You are no longer in our group, in our family, whatever. That would be a tough choice. It is upon us in some circles. It will certainly be upon us in the years to come. Where to stand with Christ will mean standing alone, to be shunned, to be put out, to lose your business, your employment. What in the world, what in the world is going to take us through those times? How is that going to be replaced? How is that no to social idolatry going to be replaced with a better yes? It comes in verse 1. It's the loud voice of Jesus. The voice of Jesus being louder than all the other voices of this world. Someday it will certainly be because this loud voice will pronounce judgment, will pronounce the wrath of God on all covenant breakers. 
even the decent ones. You know, to be born into this world, to bear the image of God, is to be born into a covenant relationship with God. When you're born, you're in a covenant relationship with God. He's made a covenant relationship to you as an image bearer of God. And then we live the rest of our life rebelling against that covenant, breaking it, breaking that covenant. Now, on the outside, we might look like decent, wonderful, friendly people. But if we are not yielded to Jesus Christ and trusting in His righteousness alone, then we are covenant breakers, and upon us this wrath of God is going to be poured out. And God says, Jesus says, this, my voice is going to reign supreme over all the other voices, the other voices that say, fit in, just compromise. Decency is the way to get by. God grades on a curve. Your good works are going to get you there. The loud voice of Jesus is going to be greater than all of that. And particularly for discipleship of Christ, this, this voice, these words have to be louder than all the others. Hearing Him say right now, well done, good and faithful servant. You are doing well right now. Keep it up. It is to hear the louder voice right now of Jesus saying, or the Father saying, you are my beloved child. I am pleased with you. Continue to align yourself with me. Be my friend. Stay with me, no matter whoever turns on you, whatever it costs you, because my voice is louder and is going to be the last voice at the great day. And we need this too to say no to social idolatry, to say no to just blending in, keeping our head down, keeping our mouths shut, is going to require, it's going to require us to be committed to each other in unity and love. When the world casts you out, when your employer casts you out, when your friends throw you out, when they cut you off, you, you must be able to come to your Christian family and for your Christian family to echo the voice of Jesus, to help you hear it, and to be a louder voice of love than in the exclusion or the canceling you're receiving. It means that you and I must be vigilant to give that kind of encouragement to encourage one another, say, keep it up. I know it's costing you, but keep it up. I just came earlier this week. I meet uh, once a year with uh, a group of pastors from one denomination. And then another part of the year, I meet with pastors from the denomination I'm in now. And almost every week, I pray with a group of pastors who are Methodists and Baptists and uh, Presbyterians and Pentecostals. Sounds like the making of a joke, but it's a, it's a coming together of group of people. And here's what we do for each other. This is what we do for each other. We tell our stories to each other. We share our battle scars. And the rest of the group just cheers us on. We don't offer advice to each other. We don't need it. What we do need is encouragement. We're all about the same thing. Advancing the kingdom of God, preaching the gospel of Christ. We're all getting called about the same things. We're all having the same experiences. We need each other. You need that too. 
Now, you know, I fight against it. I think I can use my time better. It's going to take so long to drive over there, meeting with a bunch of preachers. and yeah, But uh, I always come back refreshed. We need each other. It's true what Kathy told me one time. He said, preacher, I've never known anybody who's died from too much encouragement. Have you? We need to encourage one another because the social pressures of conformity are so great. We've got to, we sometimes, we can't hear the louder voice of Jesus saying, well done. I want you to hear it at the end. You're my beloved son. We've got to hear it from each other. That's why John is writing this letter. It's not to scare you. Unless you're a rebel, it's to keep you encouraged. Second idolatry we need to hear Jesus no to is because he has a better yes for us. The second idolatry is stuff idolatry. Social idolatry and then stuff idolatry. Where do I get that? Verse, uh, uh, verses uh, 3 and 4, the second angel poured out his bowl into the sea. It became like the blood of a corpse. Every living thing, and it died. Then the third bowl, the third angel poured out his bowl into the rivers and the springs of water, and they became blood. I heard the angel in charge of the water say. We'll get to that in a minute. Now, what, what, is this, uh, what are these second and third bowls? These second and third bowls are judgment on materialism. Now, I can show you that for sure. In chapter 18, verse 23, expands on this triumph over all of the enemies of Christ. He says, your merchants were the great ones of the earth. Yeah, what is that? What do those merchants have to do with this pouring out of death on the sea? The merchants made their, <laughs> the commerce was on the sea. The sea, the river Nile in Exodus, that was the engine of commerce. If you can't get your fish or your livelihood from the water, if you can't navigate the waters, then there is no commerce. So he's saying, you are trusting in material things. They're more important to you than storing up treasures in heaven. And so you compromise and you give yourself to stuff that will perish, spoil, fade, rot, rust, disappoint. Augustine said, do you remember that book I pointed to, to you a, long, a while ago, a few weeks ago, that thick book, The City of God by Augustine, written in the fifth century, as the Roman Empire was falling. In that book, Augustine says that, uh, that one way you could tell Christians from non-Christians as Rome was falling. Remember, Rome was supposed to be a Christian nation. By the 300s, it was easy to be a Christian because it didn't cost anything to be a Christian, and Christians weren't different. But one way you could tell a true Christian from, from an unbeliever, he said, is that the true Christians were giving away all their stuff, and they gave all their stuff away before the vandals got there because they wanted it to be clear that when they were killed, they were killed because they stood on the name of Christ and not because the vandals wanted their stuff. 
They didn't want any stuff around, so they didn't want to obscure the testimony that I am dying for Jesus. Not because somebody won my stuff. How much of our private thoughts are spent on gaining or keeping or multiplying our stuff? How many immoral, anti-Christian things do we tolerate in politicians or people of power because they are doing things that make our life more profitable? How many of our investments are in causes or industries that subvert Christianity, but they're very profitable? How many things do we let slide in our company or refuse to speak up about or refuse to stand on because it could cost our job or it could make us appear in the culture to be practicers of hate speech or just hateful and narrow-minded, backwoods fundamentalist? Lord Jesus searches our hearts and says, do you love me? Open your hands and say, there's nothing that anyone can threaten to take away from me. There is nothing that anyone can threaten to take away from me that will cause me to compromise, to hide my light, to fail to stand up and say, I love Jesus and His Word. It'll cost you from so-called Christians as much sometimes as it will from the world. What in the world is going to help us? How in the world are we going to get past that? That is something that has grip on all of our hearts, this stuff, idolatry. How are we going to get through it? How are we going to persevere? It's right here. Verses 5, 6, and 7. It's God. Just are you, O Holy One, verse 5, who is and who was, for you brought these judgments. Here is, he says, you are righteous, God. I know that the, that the definition of justice or the definition of right and wrong, it fluctuates, it waxes and wanes, but you are the definition of what is righteous. It's found in your Word. I'm going to lock in on that. You will never change on me. You are holy. The, the, the motives of my own heart can't be trusted. The motives of those around me can't be trusted. Your motives are totally pure. You are holy. And you're eternal. You are and you were and you will be. You're eternal. You're never going to change. That means that if I suffer in this life for standing for you, with you, in allegiance with you, then verse 6, they have those who shed my blood, either figuratively or literally, those who shed my blood well, you will give them blood to drink. No matter what I lose in this world, no matter what it costs me in this world, in that which is to come, you will declare what is right. 
and you'll bring judgment on that which is wrong. And just in case we miss it, verse 7, it's wrapped up with this bow. These three stars in the covenant constellation of truth and justice and by extension faithfulness. Truth, justice, and faithfulness. God is true. His truth endures for it doesn't matter if it's in vogue or not. His truth is truth. No matter who accuses you of what, what they accuse you of your motives, whatever label they attach to you, He is truth. You can hide in His, you can stand on His truth. He is just. He rules with equity. And He's faithful. He will never let you down. And then we have to be that covenant community for each other. We too have to be committed to truth. And so when a brother or sister is being falsely accused, we must stand up for them. When someone is being treated with inequity, we must stand up for them in justice. When someone is being, uh, is being betrayed and treated unfaithfully, we must stand up for them. When it costs them materially, we must supply for them. The community of Christ focused on Christ must be the antidote, an antidote for stuff idolatry. Because that's contentment. The opposite of that is contentment. The ultimate secret for contentment is resting in truths that are eternal. The ultimate secret to contentment is resting in the true one who is eternal, and we have to embody that for each other. Let me wrap it up this way. You know how sometimes you hear things from older, wiser mentors, parents, grandparents, and it takes sometimes years to figure it out. That happened to me this past week. Many years ago, I was walking through the St. Louis airport. I was early for my flight, which meant I read the wrong time on my ticket. I'm never early for the flight. I'm early for, really early for the flight. And as I was walking through the concourse, I, I saw one of my old New Testament professors. He was in his late 80s at the time. He was waiting at a gate for his plane that was going to take him on an international trip. And so I had time to sit down and talk with him. And, and we, he wasn't much one for chit-chat. We had a few surface things. Then he turned the conversation in a dramatic way that it, it, it snapped my neck. I only learned later, a few months later, that he had a premonition that he was going to die on that trip. He was on a ministry trip. He, knew, he had an idea that he was going to die. He wrote out the instructions for his funeral. He even wrote the checks, even the honorarium for his funeral. And so when he was sitting at that gate, he was thinking back over his life, and he was anticipating heaven. So that's where his, the conversation went. I was his pastor too. He was in my car. He's his pastor. I believe his name was Dr. We'll just call him Dr. Harold. Dr. Harold said, Pastor, I believe that when I get to heaven, I'm going to see Dr. Carl. 
Dr. Harrell said, I believe when I get to heaven, I'm going to see Dr. Carl. That was surprising for me to hear. I'll explain why. Dr. Carl and Dr. Harrell started their ministries about the same time in the late 20s, early 30s. And in those days, the church was, all big denominations were fighting the same thing. People who were denying that the Bible was God's Word, denying that Jesus is the Christ, denying that He died to save with His atoning blood, denying the virgin birth, denying miracles, denying salvation. And so, Dr. Harrell and Dr. Carl and a bunch of other brave young men, young women stood up and said, no, we must preach the gospel of Jesus Christ according to the Word of God. And they got kicked out of their denominations. They got fired from their institutions. They had to form new colleges and new seminaries and new denominations. Dr. Carl was a magnetic personality, a powerful preacher. In fact, people from every tradition wanted to be a preacher like him. Billy Graham wanted to preach like he did. He had a worldwide following. He started a new denomination, new, new seminary, new college. They had partnerships across the country, partnerships around the world. And that all became gospel preaching institutions. The problem was that Dr. Carl never quit fighting. He wanted to fight. And when he couldn't find something that was truly anti-biblical, he would create something that he said was anti-biblical so he could fight it. So eventually he had to start a couple of other denominations because they keep splitting. And he kept adding to the requirements. So to be a part of his church, you had to believe a very particular way about the book of Revelation, especially chapter 20. And you had to preach against alcohol and tobacco and dancing. And you had to believe that, um, that Christians must be involved in politics. You had to believe to oppose race was to be a communist racism. You, you, you had to believe that uh, socialized medicine or bringing health care to the poor was communist. And so he began to label people who didn't agree with him communist or liberal. And then he had another rule, and that was he would separate from anybody who didn't believe the way he did on those cardinal things. And then it took a step farther. If you didn't separate from those same people, then he would separate from you. In other words, there's a second degree separation. Not only must you separate from those you disagree with, you must separate from those other people who don't disagree with them too. It was an early form of cancellation. Ultimately, this Dr. Carl, he ended with, as you can imagine, not many friends, but he fired all of the men who became my professors eventually at my seminary and my college because they refused to agree with him. They lost everything they had, all their earthly possessions. They had to start over. 
And then he followed them the rest of their days and opposed them and protested them and tore down their character and called them communists and, and liberals. So when Dr. Harrell told me that he believed when he got to heaven in a few weeks, he was going to see Dr. Carl, that got my attention. And then he said this, you know, George, we've wasted a lot of life fighting about things that don't matter. We wasted a lot of life fighting about things that don't matter. And you know, when we get to heaven, when I see Dr. Carl, we're not going to think about the past and these things we disagreed on because Christ will be our only focus. He should have been our only focus here. And can you imagine how much more we would have done if we had stayed united and quit fighting about these things? They're not essential to the Word or to the gospel. How much more could we have done for the kingdom? It's only about Christ, pastor. It's only about Christ. Brothers and sisters, we are brothers and sisters. I am thankful for our unity, but let us be good stewards of it. Not just so that we are peaceful, but let us be good stewards of it that we can advance the gospel because it's going to be harder and harder to be a Christian and resist social idolatry and stuff idolatry. We need each other to stay courageous and content in Christ who was and is and is to come and will get the victory. Amen? Let us pray. Lord Jesus, we pray that you would give us courage that we do not have in ourselves. Give us contentment that is entirely contrary to our natures by speaking more loudly with the voice, well done, good and faithful servant, keeping us encouraging one another to live with open hands in this world, unencumbered, that we might run more swiftly to the kingdom which is to come. In Jesus' name we pray and God's people said, amen.